Testing. One, two, testing. Testing. How does your sound, Dorian? Testing. Testing. Okay, great. Um, and how old are you, Dorian? Five. And you just had a birthday. Mm-hmm. Where are we at right now? In the car. <laughs> what are we doing in the car? Why are we sitting in the car? To do the podcast. To do the podcast, because it's kind of quiet in here. What's going on in the world right now, pal? A virus. And we're trying to stay safe at home, right? Mm-hmm. What does the virus do? Uh, it gets people sick. But this one, it makes people really sick. How can we prevent people from getting the virus? Well, not touching things that other people touch. And what can we do with our hands? Wash our hands. Wash our hands a lot and keep distance from other people, right? Mm-hmm. Are you having fun with mom and dad both at home all the time? Yeah. Yeah? Can I tell them a story? Yeah, you can tell them a story. Uh, we've been making banana bread muffins. Oh, making banana bread muffins? The end. Okay, I'm going to introduce people to this episode now. Why don't you tell people uh, what the show is called? But don't put your face on the mic. Just speak like, see how I'm holding it like this? That's perfect. Okay. okay. It's a Massa Institute podcast. I'm Blair Hodges. George Handley is a professor in the Humanities Department at Brigham Young University. The humanities encompass the study of human societies and cultures. It includes things like history, philosophy, religion, the arts, politics, anthropology, language, literature, all of these fields fall into the realm of academic humanities. George Hanley's dedicated his intellectual life to the humanities. And one reason, he says, is because in learning so much more about other people, he's come to learn more about God. In this episode, we're talking about his book, If Truth Were a Child. The book is part of the Maxwell Institute's Living Faith series. If you're a church leader who's looking to connect better with your flock, or if you're one of the sheep who feels undernourished, George Handley has important things to share with you questions and comments about this and other episodes can be sent to me at mipodcast at byu.edu. George Handley, welcome again to the Maxwell Institute podcast. Thanks, Blair. I appreciate being here. It's been a while. Like, you were way back in the beginning. Uh, yeah. I think you were episode two. When you were just a wee little lad. Just a wee little lad back then. <laughs> We've come a long way. The current episode that's coming out is episode 92, so I don't know what number this one will have. That's exciting. Yeah. You've well, been doing a great job. And you're back because you've published a book with the Maxwell Institute now, um, a book in our Living Faith series called If Truth Were a Child. Well, let's talk about that, the title itself, which came from one of the essays. What is that title talking about? Well, it's borrowing from the story of King Solomon, the famous story of the child who has... Uh, disputed identity between two mothers who claim to be the mother of the child. And I was sort of playing with the idea in the essay that the woman who loves the child and is the true mother is willing to sacrifice the child in order to keep it whole. Sacrifice um, her to the other person. To the other person. The Sorry. Yeah, I should <laughs> clarify that. Yeah. To give her up is what I give the child up in order to keep the child whole. And whereas the, the woman who is lying is willing to actually split the child, right? I mean, it's sort of a strange and violent image. And so I was sort of thinking about how we might handle truth differently and more carefully if we thought of it as a child. Part of what I'm getting at in the essay is sort of the multidimensionality of truth, that we are inherently limited 
You know, as Jesus says in one of his great teachings that we, we sort of, you know, when we think we see, we're actually blind. So he, he's trying to help us understand that we, we always see partially and incompletely. And so our approach to revering truth and proclaiming truth ought to reflect the kind of humility that I think Christ enjoins us to have that is more aware of our limitations. That's a that's a fine line, of course, to, to walk because he's also charged us to be to proclaim the truth, to you know, and to be bold when we need to be bold. And so it it's not always an easy balancing act, but I guess I'm just trying to stress the fact that it is in fact a balancing act and, and it's something that requires proper circumspection. This essay was put out during a time of of really high partisan divide, I think, in the United States, where where you live, where you've grown up, where you wrote this essay. And there's a sense in which truth can become, in this context, a battle, a war of words, winner-take-all, back-and-forth polemical exchanges. And you're trying to reframe it and say, look, if we treat truth as a child, would we be willing to just go in there with guns blazing and view our exchanges with other people in this really aggressive way? Or would we try to treat truth more carefully and see it as its own living thing that we can't even own, that, that we can't possess? Talk about the context of this essay and and, and what informed it, This these polemical battles. It, it, it's pretty bad right now. The United States has had polemical extremes in the past, too, so it's not necessarily new, but it seems to be at a pretty high pitch right now. Yeah. Well, according to a lot of historians and scholars, it's the worst it's ever been, actually, in terms of polarization, maybe not necessarily in terms of incivility, but in terms of polarization between the two parties in particular and the acrimony between them as seeing each other essentially as you know, an enemy to the nation. It's never been this bad with the possible exception of shortly after the Constitution, but uh, but even then there's some evidence to, to suggest that it's worse. So it's it's a serious problem. And of course, we're talking about two different kinds of truth in, in some sense, at least I'm wrestling with that. And I actually have an essay about politics and the church, and then in, uh, this other essay about if truth were a child both addressing this problem. Uh, I think the political truths that we believe that we are in possession of are particularly vulnerable to this kind of a problem of overstating what portion of the truth with a capital T we think we own when we when we have a particular conviction. And there's a there's a sort of unwillingness to try to engage someone who is an opponent who thinks differently than than you do we've we've really lost that willingness to try to find common ground before we properly understand our differences you know when i was in college i had a i went to stanford university and had a atheist marxist professor my freshman year <laughs> and he found out that i was a latter day saint and he was he was respectful but he was i'm i'm pretty Sure, hopeful that he could persuade me to no longer proceed along the path of a religious life because he was convinced that it was wrong. But one thing he taught me, as much as we occasionally disagreed on things, he was very insistent that if I was going to disagree with any argument that I was reading or that we were debating in class, I had to do, and this wasn't just pointed at me, it was at all of us, you know, we had to 
make sure that we understood the argument that we were actually arguing against. And if you couldn't articulate that argument in language that the person who possesses that argument and is convinced of it would agree is accurate, then then you may still have more work to do before you should really get into the arm wrestle about about who's right. But part of the problem that I'm wrestling with in this book is that and this is a danger, I think, that creeps into religious culture as well as to political culture, we sort of end up thinking that the ultimate objective is really just to be right. I mean, it's just to have the right worldview and that you, you know, time is well spent and energy is well spent when we just try to influence other people to have the right worldview and that we get bent out of shape when they don't. We, um, or we feel know, scared or nervous. Or we feel scared and threatened, exactly. And we don't realize that, you know, Christ... Christ has called us to the good life and to the abundant life, which is a life of loving and serving and not thinking of ourselves and of trying, striving to become good, try, striving to become more like him. And truth is an important component to that, obviously, but it, the ultimate goal isn't to be right about what is true and what is untrue. It's to be good, and, and goodness is a kind of fidelity to goodness. It's a fidelity to light, and it's a fidelity to God. But I think I think sometimes we just maybe put the cart before the horse, and we think that it's actually more important to be right. And I, if I read Paul correctly in Corinthians when he's talking about charity, you know, he's really saying it actually doesn't matter how much truth you possess. You can You can teach the truth all day long until you're blue in the face, but if you do not have love in your heart, doesn't really actually add up to a whole lot. And in fact, you could do damage, severe damage, to the truth that you're protecting, you're striving to protect. Yeah, there's a striking passage in the Doctrine and Covenants that comes to mind where it says, are you, are you teaching the truth in the spirit of truth or in some other way? So that suggests that you can try to communicate truth in untrue ways that kind of cancels out that truth. Yeah. How would you say truth can be communicated in the spirit of truth? Well, I, you know, in another essay in the book on uh, criticism, compassion, and charity, I, I, I essentially try to make the not original argument that charity is really important and that it is uh, a gift of God, that it actually is not natural. I mean, that's how I read Moroni 7, right? It's, I, I read that as saying to me, you you can muster love and and affection for people and it's and it's quite easy to do for people you like it's maybe natural to do for your own children on the day they're born and for your spouse on the day you're married and so on but ultimately life is going to exhaust those natural affections and in, in maybe not permanently or always but at some point you're going to run out of gas you're going to find that you can't even muster natural affection for the people that you should love and you've lost your patience or whatever it might be. I'm sure I'm not the only one who's lost patience with their children or with their spouse. At least I hope I'm not because that would be a very lonely world. But, but Let's get more into that, George. Give us some more details. No, But, but I, yeah. think, I think the point is that Christ has offered us a gift of his love and Mormon teaches us that it's actually something that can be bestowed onto you but that is actually dependent upon desire. Like it re you really have to want it with all the energy of your heart, right? You, and that to me means I recognize that I don't have it. I recognize that I, there's a gap between 
my love for human beings and God's love for human beings. And, and that gap's significant enough that I hunger and thirst after it, and I want it badly enough to plead for it. So I don't think, it, I guess maybe I'm sounding like I'm not really answering the question. I don't, I don't think there's like this methodology other than it's a spiritual methodology mm-hmm. of recognizing insufficiency and being really careful. I, I think sometimes we think, we, one, some of our most serious mistakes as parents is when we think, and as spouses, is when we think that being right and, and loving another person are sufficient reason to be outraged that we have been betrayed. Right by someone's behavior, a choice or some, that they made, or yes, something that they're yeah. doing, yeah, and that's just not good enough, right? As it turns out, I mean, it wasn't good enough for Jesus, right? I mean, he he was right, and he <laughs> he was in possession of the truth, but he had to have charity. He had to allow himself to be insulted um, mm-hmm. and and wounded by the world, right? But George, and, this is where it gets really difficult. So, throwing out some hypotheticals, let's say when the person that you're supposed to be loving is in a position to hurt you, so in abusive situations, yeah. in situations where a, a child decides to that the church isn't working for them and they leave, or you know, families who have family members who come out as LGBT and right. and, and and these type of issues where the rubber's really hitting the road here. And, and there's yeah. real things at stake. And in fact, trying to love someone else can end up hurting you pretty bad. What do you do in those circumstances? In other words, how can charity be operative when, when you're in a position of great vulnerability? Yeah. Well, that's a, that's a really important question. And, and, and in different places in the chapters, I try to address that particular scenario. You know, for one, for example, I point out that in sustaining church leaders— the, the the scriptural mandate is actually um, to sustain only those who are honoring their responsibilities. In other words, if I, I don't think our intention, which is a very strong one in our church, to sustain leaders because we're a lay church, and, and what how I read that is, hey, we're all human. Uh, we need to we need to help a leader be successful. But if a leader is being abusive, and if you're aware of that abuse, the scriptures seem to indicate to me that 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 my responsibility is to is to indicate that that's a problem, right? And and I'm not obligated to sustain somebody who is abusive. That doesn't mean I'm not obligated to love, right? I mean, in some sort of generic sense. But love does not mean excusing others' abusive behavior and absorbing the wounds that people are sort of inflicting on us unjustly. I do think charity is not just extendable to the person who is the abuser or the violator, but it's also to oneself first and foremost, and understanding and accepting Christ's love for us but to the degree that we feel that we are burdened by something, by an enemy that is beyond our capacity to bear, that's precisely why we need Christ. I think the command to love our enemies is the mandate to try to, in many of those cases, in my experience, and I'm not talking about like enemies who have come after me to abuse me. I have not been abused, uh, neither sexually or physically, by, by anyone in my life, so I can't speak to that experience. Have I been mis- mistreated by those in, a, in authority? Yes. Have I, been, have I felt betrayed by people I trusted? Yes. And do I feel like on occasion I have enemies? Yes. And my, my quest is to try to use Christ's love to see if, in loving my enemy, 
that perception of an enemy actually vanishes or it changes in some some way. And it may be that with all the charity in the world, uh, I look at, at my enemy and, and he or she is still my enemy. In other words, they still do, in fact, mean to harm me and they are a danger to me. And I think... I, you know, am an, uh, obligated to remove myself from that situation, to call that out for what it is. But, but I also, because I'm also potentially blinded by my own biases and my own uh, weaknesses, the mandate seems to be just make sure that you're not dehumanizing your enemy to the point where you have done yourself some spiritual, added spiritual harm by creating more of a problem than really exists. And this can get difficult. I remember I I was able to read some of the manuscript early on in the early stages. And at that time, there are some things that as I'm reading it, they're really connecting. And then now when I read the finished product, uh, things have happened that I'm noticing something new. And that's this problem of both sides-ism. This is the idea that, oh, you know, everybody's a child of God. They're good people on all sides. They're good, you know which can tend to paper over some real troubling things. What do you think about that, the the problem or the tension that exists there when you're trying to have charity for others? Right. But, but there's also this idea of like, well, you know, both sides, such and such. Well, I don't think it's charity to just be like blankly tolerant, right? I, I just, I think that's not what Christ is calling us to do. I mean, he's not saying don't use your mind, don't use judgment at all, um, don't assess a situation and and identify error. And act, so actually, I think a sort of blanket tolerance, whether you're on the political right or on the political left, is really kind of a vacuous concept, because it doesn't actually address specific harms mm-hmm. and specific problems. So in my essay, where I talk about criticism and compassion, I mean, it's sort of a triangular relationship that I see between using criticism, which is critical judgment. That's how I kind of understand that term. I'm not talking about harping or, you know, the sort of the negative uh, connotation of contention that we sometimes have in church culture. I'm talking about the mandate that I think is crucial to our well-being to be critical judges of ideas and values and of people and of situations and circumstances that we find ourselves in. And if we don't cultivate those skills of critical judgment, we're, we're in danger. We're in danger of being duped, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, an elderly person mm-hmm. or a young person who is duped um, in a relationship of trust mm-hmm. by somebody who tries to abuse their economic situation mm-hmm. or physical situation. We want to teach children and adults and everyone to use critical judgment, right? And suspicion, right? There's a sort of healthy suspicion. But at the same time, we would have to say, well, okay, a life of categorical, you know, of a disposition of suspicion that never knows how to break out of that and never knows when to trust is also a problem, right? So there's, that's what I, you know, I think compassion is is kind of a way of balancing that. If I, if I can learn practices of compassion and understanding so that I can really feel and suffer with another person in their circumstances, then I'm learning something crucial. But charity seems to be sort of the added ingredient that's, that's like I say, not natural. It's a gift of God. And I think that helps us to go beyond, for example, just being compassionate toward people who are like us 
and actually learning a kind of regard uh, regard for their inherent dignity even when they are their behavior is abhorrent and i actually think charity is a, is a, more of a crowning jewel precisely because i can identify the really awful things that someone has done like if i can still find some love and regard for the humanity of another person who has been an abuser or who has been capable of awful things. That to me is wisdom. It's not naivete. And it's not like this sort of blanket trust that makes me vulnerable. But it's also not, it's it's also a protection against allowing anger and hatred to just overwhelm me, right? Which is also what we're vulnerable to when we are violated and injured by people or by circumstances in, in real and painful ways. That's George Handley. He's author of the book, If Truth Were a Child. It's part of the Maxwell Institute's Living Faith book series. He also teaches interdisciplinary humanities here at Brigham Young University and serves as the associate director of the Faculty Center. I want to circle back to something you said a little bit earlier. It's connected to what we were just talking about. You mentioned how skepticism is kind of part of your makeup. You brought that from your childhood. You engaged it as uh, with your career in the university. But it's not just skepticism about others. There's also a sort of skepticism about yourself. In, in one of the essays, you're talking about personal revelation as one of the principles of the gospel that really draws you to being a Latter-day Saint. And you talk about religion as being a check on your own biases. So there's a skepticism in some ways that turns inward that you're trying to point people to. Yeah, I guess I'm I'm talking about it in a very maybe in a different way than than uh, members of the church might be more familiar with. Um, personal revelation is a re- well. First of all, let me just say that in a church that believes in revelation, like we do, and in prophets, seers, and revelators, to my mind, if if we didn't also believe in personal revelation, then I then I would walk away from it. I mean, I would say, well, that sounds like a formula for uh, you know, adoring a cult figure rather than what I consider to be kind of the 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 universality of Christianity. Yeah, you'd surrender your agency, right. you're outsourcing your own moral engagement. Yeah. And I just love that Joseph Smith from the very beginning was so hungry to share his experiences with others and and to enable them to have the kind of experiences he had had. And that's what I found so moving about President Nelson's first talk as as president and prophet of the church was an invitation to us to learn how to have more personal revelation. But that said, you know, that said, personal revelation uh, multiplied across a landscape of a very diverse people is uh, it could be a formula for chaos and mayhem, right? Because everyone is now taking their own personal convictions and adding God's uh, sanction to it, and suddenly we're in a, a scenario where we're wrestling over the ultimate realities of things and we're not recognizing our own partiality. And that sometimes is, frankly, what happens in church settings, right? Uh, Where unable to recognize the possibility that good people sitting together could receive different impressions and maybe even opposing impressions uh, about a particular issue. And where do we go from there, right? And so I I think I was trying to suggest that revelation is both personal 
and collective. It's both individual and corporate in the sense of being a body of Christ. And when I go to church, I am learning how to refine my own revelations. Many of my most important revelations have actually come to me through other people. They haven't been just through my own individual meditations and prayers and scripture reading, but they've been conversations I've had many with you where something just kind of, a light turns on and I, and I perceive something that I hadn't perceived before. And the idea that I could do that in a vacuum without all these challenging relationships in my life and, and stimulating relationships in my life is absurd to me. It would be, it's a very lonely thing. So I sort of feel like because I believe in personal revelation, I also believe in being a part of the body. And I, and I welcome the chance to refine my thinking in the presence and in dialogue with other people. That's not always easy. I mean, sometimes it's extremely painful, actually, right? And this, again, it goes to our most intimate relationships in the family and in our close neighborhoods and and most important relationships. But that's, again, where charity is called for a willing... And I think charity is a willingness to say, could I be wrong? Am I wrong? Am I missing something here? What do I need to listen to? What's God trying to tell me right now? That that requires a, a, a pretty high degree of humility. So if I'm really serious about personal revelation, what I should do is cultivate that humility rather than become a person who just thinks that God just attached himself to all of my opinions, and now I have sort of extra authority to be really arrogant. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think this uh, this goes back to the metaphor of the book of truth where a child, like this is something that you care for and hold, but there's a way that you could hold a child to would just crush it. You could squeeze yeah. the life right out of it. Uh, if you hold it too loosely, you could drop the child. You could hurt the child. So when we're dealing with our own faith in community with other people, there's a sense in which we all, if we think of truth as a child, it's this yeah. precious possession that has a life of its own right that needs us and we need it and we need to care for it right. and be careful with it but not you know not too careful not i mean it's yeah, striking not this so balance possessive. yeah no, that's a great image too and in fact i've used this story to illustrate this point when i was a little boy my dog had puppies and i remember taking one of the puppies you know and i was holding it with that mm-hmm. kind of I, th- I must have been five years old, oh, you know, yeah. and I was like cuddling it and to the point where I heard it. I remember mm. hearing it like cry out like, ouch, you're breaking my legs, <laughs> yeah. you know, <laughs> and, I, and I remember putting it down on the ground scared that I had hurt it mm. and it kind of limped a little bit and, and it was fine. But, but I, I, you know, I think of that as actually, and, and that's the story of that mother, right? She gives up her child. Because, uh, so she understands that true love is actually not a kind of possession, yeah. right? It, it, it is recognition that I can't own this thing. And if I squeeze it too tight and if I try to ho- defend it uh, too vehemently, I may actually do damage to the thing that I think I'm trying to protect. And I, and I think there are lots of examples in our lives with family, you know, even if we say family is so and so important and family unity is something we value, but you can use that as a weapon, mm-hmm. right? And if your child becomes wayward or your spouse becomes wayward, you're you're presented with this challenge of, okay, was my was my love for my family just based on the assumption that we would all, 
be like-minded and now that we're not do i feel betrayed by this do i or do you need to protect yourself from it or punish them there's a lot of right, different options you right can take and, and the irony of someone who in the name of family would reject a child who has made other choices to my mind is is an example of i mean it's the same thing i think of you know in the name of christianity either condoning the abuse of other people or actually participating it in some way. Um, Jesus, you know, I'm, I'm so moved by, I think it's chapter 22 in Third Nephi, where Jesus is talking about being sure that we're worthy to partake of the sacrament. And then, but he gives, he repeats the warning four times that we should never cast anybody out. We should never stop ministering to anybody ever for any reason. He says, because you never know. You know, you never know what the final story is. And what he's trying to say is, you know, you being being my disciple means uh, you have to keep yourself open, and you cannot you cannot allow yourself to come to premature judgment about people and about situations. You have to allow for the possibility for goodness to emerge and to be taught by the situation that you're in. And that closing the circle more tightly is not is not the answer. Yeah. It's, uh, it's the door has to be wide open. So we're talking about sort of interpersonal relationships and how this works, but this model of truth being a child also works personally. You paraphrase Emily Dickinson in one of the chapters saying that the questions that people have or doubts that get raised about different things about the gospel or the church or whatever, uh, that doubts and questions can actually keep your faith nimble and alive if, you, you offer a caveat, if, if you're motivated more by trust than by fear. Well, and maybe another way to phrase it is that belief is not a function of will. You know, I can will something to be true and, and want it so badly to be true that I could run myself into the problem where I, you know, I can't be taught anything new, mm-hmm. right? But I think if I, if I remember the mandate that I am to love the stranger, I am to love the enemy, I am to, to love the, the sinner, et cetera, et cetera, and that my embrace of others is that wide open, then it does, I think, mean that, that I I need to be more trusting. Maybe not necessarily trusting in other people. Again, going back to that other issue, you know, it could be that someone really is a danger mm-hmm. to a community and, and we do need to protect children from predators or whatever. But but we we have to be willing to uh, trust God's love and God's purposes enough and that that also means recognizing a gap between our understanding and his understanding right which is a scriptural principle that his his understanding and his thoughts are not our thoughts so to be a believer in god means that i can i can proclaim god and i can live according to what i believe he has asked me to do but i have to do so in a way that acknowledges the gap between what i understand mm-hmm. and who he might be and if I can't acknowledge that gap, then I worship a God after my own image, to use a phrase from the first section of DNC. I end, I end up, you know, it's false worship, right? I mean, that's essentially what he's saying is you're uh, idol worship. You, you've sense, made yeah. your, own, your own convictions into an idol. I mean, I know I'm, I know I'm talking about a really nuanced idea here, and, and, it, and it runs counter to the feeling that, hey, as a, as a – as a Latter-day Saint, I am called to stand for something, and I need mm-hmm. to stand up for the gospel and stand for principles and teachings and commandments, and, and I accept that. I accept, and I actually, in my chapter, 
opening uh, uh, second chapter about why I'm a Latter-day Saint, I talk about not only personal revelation, but missionary work. I think like the, you know, the challenge of having to share what I believe with other people is really inherently valuable because it does actually help me to work through my fears. I could be fearful of other people making wrong mistakes. I could also be fearful of being mocked or rejected by people once they find out I, what I believe. Or being Neither wrong fear. yourself, too. Like, right. that's another fear. Right. Yeah, and, not, and none of those fears are productive, right? Mm-hmm. They're, they're, they're potentially quite damaging. But if I, if I acknowledge the possibility and even the inevitability that I'm wrong about some things, maybe even wrong about a lot of things, then, and yet I may not know what those are yet, right? I don't know if I'm wrong about some things, so that's that. All I'm trying to suggest is sort of that need for recognizing that oppositional relationships or situations can teach us things that are of, of God, even when the person who is the adversary in a certain situation isn't acting on on behalf of God or whatever. But but I I can learn from my circumstances if I if I have the the humility to do so. And Latter Day Saints try to do that with family, friends, neighbors, but that also is something that Latter-day Saints are trying to do within the church as well. And one of the things you do is invite Latter-day Saints to create what you call a more trusting environment where we can ask and explore questions together in church meetings and in other places. I'd like to hear more about what that would look like, because some of the feedback that I get about that is, oh, I can't do that at church, or I don't talk about certain things at church because I don't want to upset people, or because people go to church to be comforted, not to explore these difficult issues. So how do you recommend people go about fostering a trusting environment where we can ask and explore questions together? Uh, that's hugely important. I mean, if we can't if we can't do it at church, then I don't know where <laughs> where we're going to do it. I mean, a lot if of people if, do it on the internet, you've got yeah, that. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> that's true. I, what I mean, I guess, is that if if a brother or a sister, I mean, I can maybe just speak to my my experience in my ward when we used to have a high priest group, which you know, of course, is now the elders quorum. It still has the same feeling to me where I live. There are members of our quorum who have been very open about their struggles with faith. And they've made themselves very vulnerable in doing that. And I've never forgotten this one time. And this has happened multiple times in my quorum. But the first time I saw it happen, it was just so moving to me. Where a man stood, he actually had the lesson for the day, and he talked about his the crosses he bears in his life and the the sorrows that he's lived through in his family and why these things have made it very hard for him to adopt the language that other people use in church about God and belief in God. And one of the most conservative and orthodox members of the quorum, without hesitation, just blurted out, I love you brother so-and-so just 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 said it so beautifully and so directly and i remember after the lesson was over that many of us were embracing and weeping together by contrary i've heard of situations many where people say you know i did do that in my quorum and i got a cold shoulder from Mm -hmm. everybody and i think well in the brotherhood of a quorum or the sisterhood of relief society if you can't be safe there, then I don't know where you're going to be safe. And if, and if we're failing there, then we're really failing. If we can't embrace people with love and say, you're where you're at, 
I see you, I hear you. Maybe you and I don't see eye to eye, but you're my brother, you're my sister. I love you and I want you here. And I, and I want all of your gifts. Even if you feel like one of those gifts is not faith, that's okay. You've got other gifts, right? I mean, we actually have scripture that says yes, <laughs> this, directly, is how, this yeah. is actually how it works anyway. And so why should, why should we feel like we all have to be cut from the same mold? I just feel like that's so damaging to what we're trying to do, you know? And I hear this in the leadership of the church, you know, Elder Hollins talked about this and Elder Uchtdorf has talked about this, that the need for recognizing the many gifts that are among us and that everyone has a place in the choir and we're not, there's no litmus test. Anybody can walk through the door and when they walk through the door, they are equal. It doesn't matter where they're from, what their life circumstances is, what their faith is, what their convictions are. They are, they are equal. We're brothers. We're sisters. We're, you know, we're all children of God. I mean, I know I'm saying platitudes here, but mm-hmm. I actually don't think we, we practice it deeply enough. Right. And- so talking about that practice, you've been in church leadership positions and stake presidencies and so on. What would you say to bishops and Relief Society presidents and other people about how they can make this real in their wards? And yeah. also, what would you say to individuals in wards who feel like they're just kind of alone in it and, and that this type of community doesn't exist for them in their wards. What kind of practical advice do you give? How do leaders and how do regular members go about fostering yeah. that type of community in real ways? Well, let me remind me to come back to the latter question after I talk first about sort of leadership. But, yep. but I think your, your latter question I'm questions, stacking questions on you. Well, <laughs> but I think that latter one's probably more relevant to most people. But I would say what I've seen happen, I can give a couple of examples. I knew a bishop whose ward started to have some real tensions in Sunday school. People were coming to the bishop and saying, I can't take it anymore. I'm hearing stuff in church that just is making me crazy. And in this particular case, it was stuff that kind of made the bishop crazy too, right? <laughs> I don't remember the content of it, but he he was – what I mean by that is that the bishop was was convinced that what was being said was probably not helpful. But but what he did was he actually, for like a fifth Sunday, he just had a conversation with the adults about how to be adults together and how, like, when we gather together, we have to be aware that not everyone thinks like we do. And when we when we open up our remarks, we can't just assume that everyone's with us. And we have to show deference and respect for people who see things differently. So he, he, hmm. he sort of actively identified the problem gently invited people to be more careful and gently chastised them for for not being sensitive and it's like a um, meta lesson like he used a fifth yeah, sunday to yeah. talk about how to talk about stuff right right they didn't get into any of the specifics they just talked about we're a community of saints and that we're trying to create unity but unity doesn't isn't achieved first and foremost by agreement it's achieved by love and respect Right and and the acknowledgement of the dignity of other people and it can go a long way to help someone feel like they belong. And th- this example I gave in my ward of this brother who said, uh, uh, you know, I love you so, out loud like that. I mean, it, the fact that it came from him was not lost on people. It was like that was that was really moving to everybody because we knew that there were strong feelings of diff- different opinions about the church and and the gospel and the truth claims and so on of of the of the restored gospel 
I've seen other scenarios as a stake presidency. We tried always, my stake president was the very first words that came out of his mouth when he was called as a stake president were, you know, everyone here belongs here and I, we, we will meet you wherever you're at. You all are welcome. All of you belong. I mean, just saying those words mm-hmm. with, with real sincerity. I mean, he, he, was, he said them with great passion and sincerity. We heard for years afterwards what a difference that made for people just to hear that message and to hear it repeated occasionally. So I just think actually saying it out loud is just really for if you're in a position of being a leader or you don't have to be a leader if you're maybe this goes to the second part of the question if you're giving a talk mm-hmm. you can say that sort of thing you can I mean you can't say it maybe on behalf of the leadership right, right? but you can say I believe that this is what the the gospel teaches us and as far as my me and my household are concerned you you know you're all welcome and and I love every one of you here and and I frankly feel like we ought to pray more often in church for our enemies. I rarely hear prayers for enemies. And I, I, I think we ought to actually, Jesus told us to do so. So I, I don't know why we don't actually practice that. But I think as a, just as a member of the church, I, I, I don't want to sound like I've got all the answers and that this is like a simple formula for everybody, but, but I just find that it helps in general to approach church and this maybe sounds a little arrogant, but I come to church to give as much as I come to receive. And and if I am only there to receive, then I'm probably going to go away a little bit empty-handed, right? I'm going to probably go away feeling a little disappointed at something. But if I'm there with the intention that I have gifts, God's given them to me. I know my story. I know who I am. I know that I'm imperfect. I know that I'm flawed, but I also know that I've got something to give. I've got insights or thoughts or I, I, maybe I'm good at reaching out to the, the quiet person and the shy person. Whatever my, I, I'm good at talking to the elderly. I'm good with kids. I should just go to, go to church with, with those gifts in mind. I mean, there's a brother in my ward who, as far as I can remember, I don't think he's ever had a calling in the youth. But he has had this habit of like part, just becoming a mentor to a young person in the ward you know, over time, he's done this with dozens of, of, of young people, and he's changed lives in the, in the process. He's given them experiences. He, he happens to be an outstanding organist, and he has access to the organ in the <laughs> tabernacle, and the tabernacle, uh, the old one. And he invited my son up there and let him play the t- wow. tabernacle organ. It was a life-changing experience for a 12-year-old boy. I mean, so I just think there are ways in which we can be really proactive, creatively trying to just see where the wounded people are. I mean, there's that saying, which I love, which I can't quote directly, but it's, you know, Mr. Rogers said something to the effect yeah. of, you know, look around and see who the people are who look are for the helpers, the help, yeah. who are the helpers and the healers, and then be yeah. one of those. And I, I actually just think that's, it can boil down to something that, that's simple in a certain sense, that mm-hmm. I, I come to church to be of help. And if I see someone who looks like they're hurting, I know their situation, and I get creative and prayerful about how I might be able to respond, my feeling of belonging goes up, right? My feeling of connection improves. Anyway. Yeah. In one of your chapters, A Poetics of the Restoration, you you point to Christ's compassion. You're talking about how the way he suffered not just for humanity, but also with humanity. So when the scriptures are inviting us to cultivate the mind of Christ— 
you say that means we're supposed to learn how to see through the eyes of other people, like Jesus did. Like if Jesus came down, yeah. he didn't just suffer for people, he suffered with them, he learned yeah. what it was like to be them. And so developing the mind of Christ is to be able to see through other people's eyes. You say this as, quote, a call to develop an increasingly profound understanding of how the gospel relates to the diversity, range, and levels of human experience. What did you have in mind there? That, that seems very broad. And it speaks, I think, to this question about making wards work in healthy ways. Yeah. Well, this is also, as a literature professor, a humanities professor, I wanted to bring to bear some understanding from the humanities to my gospel experience and church life and share that with others. And I I just feel that it's such an extraordinarily important mandate to educate ourselves as much as we can about the world. And that the more educated we are, it doesn't mean that we're in, you know, automatically a better Christian. Of course, we like to quote that to be learned is good, but only if we you know, or hearken uh, unto the counsels faithful of God. to yeah. yeah, faithful to the teachings of the gospel. But I think it's, it shouldn't be lost on us that the Lord said to be learned is good. You know, it, he really needs us to be aware and to be informed about life experiences. And so, yeah, he doesn't uh, just say like to be learned is acceptable. Like that's okay as long yeah. as you do this. That's not right. what it says. Right. It says that it's good. Yeah. yeah. If it, I mean, we're all born into certain circumstances, right? And those circumstances are both enabling of potential growth, but they're also inherently limiting. Every single one, right, of us is, is, is born like that. And to varying degrees, some of us have more exposure to more diversity in life than maybe others do. But uh, I've never seen that, that becoming more aware of diverse experiences is an inherently bad or risky thing. <laughs> I think it I think it actually broadens our understanding of It can humanity. be disorienting. It can be disorienting. That's very true and 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 I talk a little bit about that. I mean, I think there's there's and I've talked with students over the years about that, you know, I'll say, "Look, you're going to read a, this book and this book's going to take you on a journey into another world and and if you're really reading compassionately, and you're reading well, you're going to be disoriented by the time you finish the book. But consider that an opportunity to rearrange the furniture a little bit. You know, I mean, this happens to us on a personal level. When you listen, really listen to somebody, and you really listen to their situation, and you really have compassion for it, it should change you in some way. And you should be able to trust and have faith that that change can be positive. Because what I always try to tell students, and I tell myself, is that Christ understands this as well, this set of circumstances that I'm learning about. I mean, I've, I've studied the history of slavery in the Caribbean and the mm-hmm. United States and um, the early colonial period and read about Native American genocide. I mean, I've read chapters of human history that are absolutely devastating and overwhelming. And the only thing that brings me comfort is knowing that I'm not reading anything that is a surprise to Jesus. It wasn't a surprise to him at the time that he suffered. And so what is it that I can, how can I look upon the condition of humanity with compassion and respond with compassion? Because what probably disappoints me the most is when people are presented with human suffering and they don't actually see it. Because they have already in their head a narrative that explains why either it didn't really happen that way, it's not as bad as we thought, 
or it's just not really a bad thing because it's part of God's purposes or something. Mm-hmm. You know, we get, we, we, when we... A way to explain it away rather than yeah. to engage with it or even help to prevent it or yeah, stop it. Right. And I, and I think that's, I think that's immoral. I think it's immoral to n- refuse to respond to human suffering that is right in front of us because we think we know why it's necessary. I mean, it may be that in God's purposes, some things are necessary or that they are at least, they certainly are known of him. But Jesus was always first and foremost a fellow sufferer, right? He, he took his, our sorrows upon him and he said, you should do the same, right? You should mourn with those who mourn. Now, some people have a difficulty. They get, they, you know, I know some people who feel, feel like, if I read too much about the Holocaust, it'll drown me, you know, or if I, if I listen to a story of abuse, I'm utterly and totally overwhelmed and consumed mm-hmm. by the sorrow that I can't, I can't even pull myself out of it. And, and I think that's where Christ can help us, right? But I think the alternative of just saying, I don't want to know, I don't want to hear, I would prefer not to imagine that those kinds of things are even possible. And then, of course, when we're presented with evidence that something like terrible has happened, we say, oh, no, brother so-and-so is incapable of mm-hmm. that kind of behavior, or America is incapable that, of that yeah. kind of behavior as a nation, or, you know, whatever it might be. I think we can't, we can't run the risk of falling into that kind of naivete. So we, we, it takes a lot of courage, I think, to have that kind of openness and compassion to human experience and allow the experience to work upon us and, I think, trust in Christ enough to believe that even if we're not there yet, we can get to a point where we can understand a little bit more about who it is we are as, as, as children of God and, and who we are in relationship to one another and to God. Yeah, there's a quote here you say, we cannot model Christian acceptance if we refuse to acknowledge, let alone honor, the lived experiences of others. That's a quote from George Handley's book, If Truth Were a Child. It's a new book in the Living Faith series from the Maxwell Institute. Let's talk about the chapter called Letter to a Remarkable Student. This is a letter that you wrote to someone who'd raised some concerns with you and your letters responding to these concerns. One of them was their sense that the church's priorities and their priorities aren't aligned as much as they want them to be. For example, they might be really worried about climate change or or war or other issues that church leaders aren't really speaking about very often, or it just doesn't seem to be a priority. And, and so they see tension there. They want their religious community and their religious life and their religious leaders to be engaging in these kinds of issues, and they don't feel like they are, and so they feel disconnected from the faith. Yeah. How did you respond to that? Well, I really want to keep as many people in the church as I can. That's sort of, <laughs> I just feel like, <laughs> I, just, I just feel like the church is better for every person that stays. Good and ecologies or diverse ecologies. Yeah, yeah. Help and so I, I, you know, I don't know whether whether that essay is actually useful or helpful. But part of what I wanted to say in that essay was I, I hear you and I see you and I understand and share a lot of your concerns about a lot of things in the world that are going on that you feel that you uh, want to do something about. And I do share that disappointment you feel too that that maybe the the your fellow church members or the church leaders aren't saying enough about those kinds of things. I was trying to give some leeway to the church leadership to say that look they're and I've said this in different ways throughout 
couple of the essays, you know, their calling is to be witnesses of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that's a very sacred and important mission. And I accept and believe in them as uh, as such, as those witnesses. But I don't look to the church leadership for every opinion on every issue. And I find it very damaging to the church when people do that, right? In other words, they'll say something like, well, if climate change were such a big deal, church leaders would be saying more about it. If genocide in Darfur had been such a big deal, why didn't the church leaders say more about it? Are we saying that those people didn't die, (laughs) you know, or that it wasn't a big deal? I just don't know why I should expect the church leaders to lead and guide me on every small or large world issue. That's That's a big mandate for them to say, you not only have to teach me about Jesus and how to live like Jesus, but you need to teach me how to apply all of that to every situation in the in the world. And uh, so I take a lot of inspiration from DNC 58, that I should be anxiously engaged in a good cause, and that if I embrace my Christian duty to make a difference in the world and bring healing to the world, and that brings me to a career devoted to stopping human trafficking or saving the polar bear or whatever it might be, I, I see no reason why that should be a problem. <laughs> I, and unfortunately, I think in our church, there is almost this feeling at times in our culture that you know, if you get too concerned about too many issues out there in the world, you might be sort of losing your sense of priorities. I don't see the Christian life as one that should be content merely with me and my own, you know, making sure that my kids are well and they're well-fed and protected and that they're well-raised and educated. That's my fundamental responsibility. But if the sphere of my moral responsibility stopped there, you know, Joseph Smith talked about the the, the feeling that should o- overcome us of wanting to wanting to bless the whole world, the whole family of God. And that's the restored gospel that I've, I've always believed in and, and have embraced. And I just hope that students and anybody in the church who feels drawn to a certain cause doesn't feel like this is a mutually exclusive. They're suddenly hitting a crossroads, you know, where they, they either have to choose the Latter-day Saint life or they have to choose the the life of humanitarian work or something like that. I mean, I just I just love to celebrate Latter-day Saints doing anything in the world, whether it's pop singers or artists or scientists or politicians or humanitarians. You know, I I think it's wonderful and I just I want to see more and more of that all the time because I think I think we can be small in number but extraordinarily influential in the world because we care about making the world a better place, and that's who we are as a, as, as a people. George, your book was put together during a really intense period for many Latter-day Saints. One of the essays in the book was first delivered here at BYU shortly after the church enacted a policy involving the children of parents who were gay and who were married to someone of the same sex. So you gave this talk right after that policy happened, and then your book itself was released right after the policy was removed by the first presidency and rescinded. That makes for really interesting 
bookends to the work. Yeah, um, in fact, uh, you folks here at the Maxwell Institute thought that in order to celebrate the launch of a new book, you should ask me to give a lecture. <laughs> so you made me give another lecture in the same room, actually. And one day my, the video will come out, yeah, hopefully by the you, time this episode. Yeah, <laughs> and in that lecture, I talked a little bit about that uh, that irony that that I that that it was framed a little bit that way. When I when I was writing that essay, the the compa- uh, criticism, compassion, and charity essay, months leading up to the lecture, of course, I didn't know that the policy change was going to happen, and it happened, I think, just five or six days before the lecture. So I didn't really radically change the lecture a whole lot, but I did reference it the moment because it really was. Uh, there was a lot of wounded people. There were a lot of wounded people around me, and 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 I felt some of those wounds as as well. And so I wanted to be a voice of healing and acknowledgement that this was a difficult moment. But I also didn't want to be rushing to judgment and pointing fingers of blame prematurely. So I was trying to be cautious. And I and I think in in retrospect now, after the policy was rescinded. I think the same rules still apply, like, you know, compassion, care about not rushing to judgment, recognition of the sorrow, right, is is super, super important. And I'm very heartbroken about the many people who were very pained by that policy in the intervening years. And that's no small thing, right? So it's not just to say, oh, well, thank goodness that's done and gone. I mean, I'm really grateful for the decision and I honor it. And I recognize that it took courage, I think, on the part of the church leaders to just reverse it. Actually, one of the things I was, I I sort of assumed it would get reversed at some point, but I think I was a little worried that it would take much too long. And I'm just glad it just happened. It could have happened sooner, of course, but I'm glad it happened. And I embrace the fact that it happened, but I also honor and recognize that there are people who've suffered in the in the interim and still do i don't i don't really have much more to say about that per se except to acknowledge the fact that i think what i tried to do in these essays feels pertinent to me and i and i don't regret things that i say in the book about striving to sustain church leaders nor do i regret what i say in the book about the importance of being compassionate and feel other people's sorrows. I mean, I think those those are not mutually exclusive positions. And hopefully, hopefully we can learn from the experience and recognize the danger. You know, what was heartbreaking to me was hearing people at the first instance of the policy change talking about, like, you know, a sifting process and that there, there was yeah, sort of Yeah, some people would say this is happening and people who are upset about it are being sifted out before right. the last days. They're the yeah. tares. The wheat and tares are being separated. Right. That You talk about that in the book. Yeah, that was that was a very, very disappointing thing to hear. Mm-hmm. I mean, I just, I just feel like, well, what it is is judgment, yeah. you know, and it's the kind of judgment Jesus told us not to do. That's the point of the parable is not yeah. to do that, um, yeah. that you can't actually tell the difference between the wheat and the tares. They grow together and, and, and you know, backing away from that, that God loves them all. Well, and, and again, going back to Jesus saying, you never, you never stop ministering to anybody anyway, so why would anyone say that out loud and expect that that's not going to be hurtful? George, there is so much that we could talk about. I want people to know, and I 
told them at the beginning of this episode, you've written If Truth Were a Child. You were trained uh, at Stanford University and UC Berkeley. You've written a lot of things uh, on religion, literature, on the environment. Um, your books include a great memoir called Home Waters, A Year of Recompenses on the Provo River. You wrote a collection of essays called Learning to Like Life, which is a tribute to Lowell Benyon. And you also wrote a novel, American Fork. You've written a lot of things. Your newest book, If Truth Were a Child, is available now. And just to give people a sense, we, we did not get through, I think, half of the things uh, that I brought to talk about. People are going to have to check out the book. We were going to talk about avoiding cultural chauvinism in missionary work. We were going to talk about how religion can sometimes tempt us to avoid the risks of learning and growing uh, and how to overcome fear when we're learning and growing and, and when our views change and how we can remain true to the gospel while we're dealing with questions and doubts and things like that. I was going to talk to you about the humanities and how your professional training has benefited your religious life as you talk about throughout the book. I was going to talk to you about the dilemma that the gospel presents where we're commanded to lay hold upon every good thing and cleave unto all that is good. And then we're also commanded to beware of the false traditions of the fathers and and how we can go about. Uh, and we talked a little bit about that, but I, I wanted to dig in more. There's there's so many things in this book that you're talking about. I hope people will will check it out. It's called If Truth Were a Child. You're also interviewed by Terrell Givens on the Maxwell Institute podcast a little while ago. People can check that interview out too. So George, thank you for taking the time today and, and talking with us on the Maxwell Institute podcast. Well, thank you, Blair. You're a model reader. You are a truly charitable reader who reads with great interest interest and inquisitiveness and and passion and I really admire you and admire what you do with this podcast and I'm just honored and grateful that the Maxwell Institute would uh, agree to publish this book and I just I just hope it is a, of service to people I wrote it with that intention so I'm grateful for the chance to talk with you today thank you Thanks for listening. George Handley will be back in a future episode to talk about theology and the environment. He's one of the leading Latter-day Saint voices on environmentalism. He just published a new book with the Maxwell Institute called Hope of Nature, Our Care for God's Creation. You can check out a guest lecture that he delivered recently on our website, and you can learn more about the book there as well. Before we go, I want to say hello to some of the Maxwell Institute podcast completists out there. These are folks who've listened to every single episode of the Maxwell Institute podcast. Joseph Stewart, Jeff Roberts, Nicole Elkins, and Ellis Elkins, our Maxwell Institute podcast completists, will be sending you something special in recognition of our achievement. Thanks for being such diligent listeners. If anyone has... Yeah. If there are any other completists out there, let me know. You can email me at mipodcast.byu.edu to claim your reward. I'm Blair Hodges, coming to you once again from home in Salt Lake City, this time in the car. We're still dealing with this deadly pandemic. Stay safe and healthy, and I'll see you next time.